Adaptable Project is here to help, educate and inspire Aussie blokes to reclaim their physical and mental strength. This is the Dad Bod Project. The Dad Bod Project. It's the Dad Bod Project podcast with Peter Kirtle and a guy with a pretty remarkable backstory, raised in public housing, policy analyst in the Strategic Policy and Intelligence Group of the Department of Defence. That's hard to say quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Director of National Security Policy, the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq, Director of the Iraq Task Force for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, National Security Advisor to Prime Ministers. He was top 25 in Australia domestically in tennis. It's not very good, Rav. Isn't it? No, not really. Well, I played the Australian Open Juniors, but I lost. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad I brought it up. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it's a sensitive spot. Equally as importantly, and maybe even more importantly, a bloke with two young kids yeah. that's um, trying to manage that, and like we were saying, mate, making sure school lunches are done and managing that one as well. So I'm glad that we got to have this chat, and I'm grateful for the time because you've got a federal election coming up, so you've yeah. probably got a bit on, do you? I do, yeah. It's, uh, we're in full campaign mode. Are you uh, already? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I actually think in politics nowadays, you know, the campaign's almost perpetual. Mm. It's an ongoing type of thing. You know, the Yanks, you know, they have their, they have two years of Congress. Um, so that apparently they just spend all their time campaigning and fundraising rather than doing anything or yeah. making laws. That kind of shows. But mm-hmm. here we've got a three-year cycle and there's been a lot of debate about whether you expand that out a bit so you can actually govern for a bit rather than be, you know, you know, year one, you're sort of getting settled. Year two, you maybe do some stuff. Year three, you're getting ready for the, the next yeah. campaign, as it were. Is it, that's interesting because, you know, just in terms of how the consumer sees it now, because I know that there is, you know, we've probably always been a bit sceptical or a bit cynical about politics and there's a, there's a rhetoric that suggests that's new. It's probably always been the case. But I reckon on the back of, say, whether it's the Trump revolution internationally and even our revolving door of prime ministers here yeah. um, locally... Whether the consumer is a bit exhausted now, more than we've ever been by this, by politics, you reckon, is, is that a thing? I reckon people are exhausted. Um, it's not just the pandemic, even before the pandemic, the pace of uh, politics, even in my, you mentioned I was National Security Advisor uh, for the PM for a be- period of time, that was like 12 years ago. Mm. Just it, back then it was like, oh, we're going to a 24 hour news cycle. Everyone's like, you know, the pace things picking up and stuff. Yeah. We're in a 24 word cycle now, like with Twitter yeah. and stuff, and it's just, this massive information and multiple platforms and a fracturing of the media. There's some good in that with social media, obviously, people sure. can engage in that. But there's also the fact that there's not like a public square conversation anymore where you're, you're people have different realities now. Yeah. Let's just be clear about that. They, they, that. they have different points of reference. So you could be, you know, that water cooler conversation that you're having with someone where you might disagree on an issue, but at least you're talking about the same issue. Yeah. Nowadays, you don't even like. Sometimes you don't even know if you're talking about the same issue anymore, or the same set of facts, because yeah. it's just such a, a, a variety of it and a fracturing of the media. So that's a huge challenge because it's about communication to people about what's happening in government. I, I reckon it's part of the reason there's been a loss of confidence in um, political leaders. The other part is on very much on the political leaders, so-called leaders themselves. As I, I can tell you, I reckon, um, I like to think I'm an exception to this, but I, I reckon <laughs> that there's a lot of, there's a missing C word, mm. conviction. Like the, the lack of authenticity and genuineness amongst our current cycle, I guess, of um, 
politicians is really evident to me. Mm. And I'm not looking at the past through rose-coloured glasses. Everyone talks about Hawkey and Howard and all those years. It was different. Yeah. I'm, I'm old enough to remember mm. there was a degree of conviction. You might not... I might. I didn't agree with everything Howard did, for example. I'm yeah. a Labor politician. Yeah. Don't agree with Howard. But he had conviction. He believed in certain things and he went, went for it, right? Yeah. You can argue the toss with him on it. I don't yeah. know now. It's like you can't. It's like you get um, whiplash trying yeah. to keep up with the different positions that Morrison takes on things or yes. or others, you know. Is that too because of, it? I guess, the internal nature of politics is changing a little bit? Um, it's a little more challenging for leaders to... You know, Howard could have a conviction even if some of his party didn't agree because he was still going to be safe. So he go, this is what I believe and we're doing it and I don't care about the backlash. I mean, I reckon a lot like, of like, like the gun amnesty, you remember that? He example. stood up and he, yeah. and he took on the part of his party and the Nats as well. Yeah. People were angry back then, if you remember that. People remember well, that. I mean, I remember that clearly. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 he, and he, he had a conviction about it, he had a belief and he went through with it um, and, and it bore results. Hawk the same, like I remember the, well, I was speaking of Hawkey, obviously, before he passed away, yeah. had the um, good fortune of going, well, I went to his house a couple of times and basically sat on the balcony and, and drank crownies right. and uh, he pulled out. The Did he scum cigars. those as well? Or? Mate, I don't, I was pissed by like within an hour, like yeah. I don't know how many crownies he had, but he, he loved his, yes. he loved telling, he was regaling me with stories about his time with Ronald Reagan and, you know, wow. foreign policy wow. stuff. But I, I actually, you know, he, he stood up you know, in the mid-80s on immigration, for example, yeah. um, where there was this, this push to stop Asian immigration to Australia and so on. He said, no, mm. I'm not going to base it on race. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand firm on this. But it was quite popular at the time, yeah. even in his own cabinet uh, and on Tiananmen Square and things like that. So yeah. these guys had conviction. They believed they were big personalities. Mm. and You might not uh, agree with everything they did, but I think people had respect for uh, the leaders. Yeah. I hope we're in a cycle where that comes back, Rav. Because I think um, the public are yearning for leadership, strong leadership, but with conviction, with genuineness, with authenticity, and a belief in you're doing something for the betterment of the country. Like you yeah. want to improve Australia and and Australians' lives. That's that's. I think people will see that. They can see it when it's real. I might run. You should run. Do you have to wear shoes? I don't know if you can get away with your thongs, <laughs> but you know, people might think that's pretty genuine, but it's pretty good. All right, well, it's decided. I'm going to be Prime Minister, ladies. You can wear the tank top as well. Yeah. Ladies love that. Yeah, good stuff, yeah. At least six months of the year. Canberra gets cold, day. Oh, mate, minus, minus one, you know. Yeah, yeah, okay. Anyway, we'll think. Well, I used to play footy we'll in Canberra too when I was a public servant at Ainsley Footy Club. Okay. And so that was a pretty good, pretty good club as well. Jamie Shanahan, former St Kilda fullback, yeah. was our captain coach. But, um... Training those nights in the middle of winter, yeah, you had to wear the skins. You know that skin yeah. stuff. It's yeah. like minus two, minus three, minus five. Yeah, freeze your nuts idea. off. Well, yeah. you'd have to run. Yes, just to keep warm all the time. Yeah, fair enough. What we like as a footy player? Uh, I was all right. I, I played um, like you touched yourself down as a tennis player. That's quite <laughs> an exemplary record. Well, just to compare footy and tennis, I, I loved playing footy. Because it was a team sport, I was with you, you know, you're with your mates. Yeah. Tennis is a very lonely sport, you're yeah. on your own. And I, I went around Europe playing on the satellite circuit for a number of years, kicking around the clay in Europe, and it's just very, it's grinding and it's hard. Whereas footy, I just love playing footy because, yeah. you know, you get into that space where you're out there, you smell the grass, you run out, you're with your mates. And something about being in a team environment where you're looking after each other, looking after your mates, and 
it's a release almost. It's like you, you just feel a bit, you feel alive playing footy. Mm. So I love playing footy, and I, I played um, uh, a bit in the under-19s in the old VFA for Dandenong. Okay. And the Red Legs, they don't, they don't, they don't exist anymore, I don't think. Mm. Um, and played a bit of amateurs, and then, you know, when I was up in Canberra for Ainsley. And uh, even when I was living in New York, I played for the New York Magpies. That was a lot of fun. Okay. Aussie expats. Aussie expats, yeah. yeah. You had to have nine Australians and nine Americans on the field at any one time. Right. You couldn't have more than nine Aussies. Right. Wow. Because it, it was so that we could teach the Yanks how to play the game. Yes. So we used to train. A couple of times we trained at um, um, Central Park. Yeah. In this dust bowl part of, just off um, up in the Upper West Side. And then we, we trained out in the Bronx, near the Bronx Zoo. Yeah. Uh, 245th Street in Cortland. I don't know if anyone knows New York that well. Mm. But it was way out. And this is like the early 2000s or whatever. No, oh, 2005, six. I was there. Um, and you could hear gunshots, and I know it's a cliche, but yeah. there was like there was some gang stuff happening up there, um, where near where we were training. And I remember the one uh, we used to play this great um, uh, set of games against all the uh, clubs on the East Coast. So you had Eastern Conference. So we'd play against the Boston Demons, uh, the Philly Hawks, wow. the Baltimore Eagles. Yeah. Um, so we played one game in Baltimore, an away game. I don't know how the Baltimore guys found this. They found this field in the middle middle of this sort of, let's say, socio-economically deprived yes. suburb of Baltimore. If you, anyone knows Baltimore, mm-hmm. outside the Central Park, it's pretty shitty, right? Yeah. And and you know, tough, tough neighbourhoods. Mm. So so I think the locals and there was all these sort of gang guys hanging around, you know, with the you know, bandanas on their head and all the rest of it. Yeah. I think they were in just absolute shock. They, it looked like aliens had just descended on the field in their neighbourhood. Yeah. These these guys run around smashing into each other in short shorts yes. and no pads, and they were just watching us, like absolutely stunned that these Australians yeah. were playing this game. Anyway. And not Americans who probably don't know what how to handle. Some of them, yeah. Some of them, it's a bit of a, a work in progress. There was a couple <laughs> of Americans that were pretty good, actually. There was one guy that went and played... In our New York Magpies team, yeah, we didn't trade with Port Adelaide. Okay. He actually had a bit of talent. Right. This is the Dad Bod Project. It's interesting with, you know, in a lot of our content when we prep for this, we, we go in, you know, we've got in our online media and our live media, we come in pretty organised, right? So we're up so to I've this gone short, right off on a tangent. This short, no, no, no <laughs> even better. But, but this, you know, in the interest of short and punchy content, and we're doing this, and so we go into all this stuff really quite set on what we're going to do and our producer rang last week and said right you've got peter next week what are you going to talk about and yeah. I'm like, well i don't know we talk about his time in iraq we could talk about the nature yep. of federal politics we could talk about ukraine russia and and then how he seeks to be remarkable and lead and inspire and still be at primary school at 3 30 to pick up his kids so <laughs> yeah. there's a lot to discuss and sure. we cover a lot of content geopolitics is not really much um not really high on our agenda, but it would be remiss of us not to at least cover what's happening in the world, given that you're one uh-huh. of the few people that actually know what they're talking about because you've done it. Russia is in Ukraine. Mm. We know it's shit and it's awful. Is it possible in three or four minutes to explain why this is happening? Well, and, I'll try and do it and, in and a how minute. bad this could get. I'll try and do it in a minute. And the short answer to that, Rav, is yeah, most, most people don't pay attention to the the geopolitics and the strategic stuff that's happening around the world. You know, maybe a few headlines here and there. But basically what's happening is that there are authoritarian states, dictatorships, that are challenging um, democracies around the world. It's not just Russia and Ukraine. It's happening in our region with Myanmar. A military dictatorship took over. Mm -hmm. 
And we're kind of at an inflection point globally. You know, the, the stability that we've had over the last several decades, quite a few decades, is no longer. Mm. Um, there are rising authoritarian states. They seek to diminish what has served us pretty well as Australians, um, and that is a, a rules-based order. In other words, you know, um, as a trading nation, being able to work within a framework of rules to ensure our prosperity with our trade, you know, everyone follows the rules, um, but also our stability in the region, the security that we've, we've enjoyed. That is uh, being challenged uh, mm. at the edges. Uh, and, and also, why? Yeah. Well, you, if you look at uh, Putin, Putin's Russia, you know, even China, uh, other uh, authoritarian regimes, uh, there is a, there is a, a rejection of that rules-based order that was set up post World War Two. And you know, the Americans and a lot of the Western democracies that put this into place, I think it was very successful. By the way, it served Australia well. Like we, we've enjoyed a degree of security and stability. Uh, in the mm. region that has allowed us to prosper, frankly, and have a great standard of living and a quality of life uh, and all the rest of it. Um, that is being challenged now. And and we're at an inflection point in the sense that, well, what kind of world do we want to live in? What what kind of world do we want our children and our grandchildren to live mm. in? A world where you've got the rule of law, where you've got uh, freedoms, uh, freedom of speech and freedom of expression, where you have uh, equality before the law, or whether you have just might is right um, mm. and an arbitrary power uh, that drives us. It is pretty scary, and we're, we're at that point now. Like, and Putin basically, with his aggression uh, in a Ukraine, um, is challenging that. And what's interesting has been, I was in the US last, well, two weeks ago, uh, I'm a member of the Intelligence Committee of Parliament, the Intelligence Security Committee, so we went on a, de a bipartisan delegation of Washington um, where we, we had meetings at the White House and National Security Council with, with the intelligence agencies, with, you know, with Langley and the National Security Agency and Cyber Command at Fort Meade, and we met with um, the White House security officials and uh, and Congress and the congressional leaders, the Senate and stuff. It was really interesting. There was like this rare bipartisanship in America with, with respect to Ukraine and standing up to Putin. And then the Europeans were like, "Oh my God, Switzerland's no longer neutral. Mm. Switzerland's been neutral for two hundred years." Yeah. So they recognised, "Shit, this is not good." Yeah. Um, and Finland and all these European countries are sort of standing up now and saying, no, enough. You can't just get away with doing this. Yeah. Um, and the the bravery and the courage of the Ukrainian people and the defence forces and their president who are standing up and resisting, I think that's galvanised, you know, people around the world say, wow, that they, they're really fighting for the freedoms that we take for granted. Yeah. Gee, this is, I mean, it's it's... That was four it's, minutes. Sorry. It's enormous. <laughs> was oh, mate, look, we could do four <laughs> hours. But the the thing that really staggers me about even the 24-hour news cycle is that we're constantly told what and we're not really told why. With the everything. Why. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's massive. And so I've got my eight-year-old boy that says, who's, he's come across on TikTok, he knows this is happening. He goes, why is there... Why is this happening between Russia and Ukraine? And I thought, I've consumed six weeks of news on this and no one's actually told me. We so here's a, a, let me yeah. have a crack at the why. Yeah. It's about power. Right. It's about control and power. And Putin wants to expand his sphere of influence. He believes that Ukraine was always part of the Russian sphere of influence. It rejects the fact that the Ukrainians, their elected government wants to sort of shift more towards Europe or join the European Union. Um, there's a bit of legacy there in the 90s. There were some yeah. commitments made to Russia yeah. that they wouldn't allow 
Ukraine and these other countries to, to drift across to Europe. Yeah. Um, so you can argue the toss on that, but that doesn't give him an excuse to bomb the crap out of no. and kill civilians and do what he's doing. Yes. Like, that's just unacceptable. And it is about power. It's about power. We all seek, uh, by the way, I seek power as a politician. I'm not yeah. going to lie about that. Well, why do I want power? Yeah. I want to get elected so that I can get executive power and be part of a government to actually so win the power, hold the power, and then use it. And that's the key part of it. Yeah. How do you use that power? Mm. How do you implement your vision? Putin has a vision of basically him being in control and um, him and his, his mates. But it's like a, like a little mafia group, yeah. you know? where they've got billions of dollars squirreled away, they, they, they've, they've taken all the wealth for themselves and their oligarchs as well, mm. you know, the, the, the business elite, um, and they control and they have power. Whereas in our country, democracy, it's not perfect, mate. Like Winston yeah. Churchill said, uh, to paraphrase, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But what it does do is it, 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 it gives the people the sovereign power. So in yeah. other words, they decide. They, they decide to elect me. They decide on who their prime minister is going to be. If they don't like that prime minister, they can vote someone else in, right? It's not a perfect system, but at least it, it, sovereignty re resides in the people. With these dictators, it resides with them. Mm. They're arbitrary. There's no rule of law. They're above the law. And that's a really important principle, the rule of law. So no one is above the law. Yeah. Um, and in Australia, that's that's what we cherish and we, we, we've got to hold on to it and fight for it. And, fight, and stand up for it, which yes. is yeah, which is another key point. With that being the case, I mean, China is obviously the other one, and it's something that you know we can't go through a sixty-minute news bulletin without China getting a mention, mm. and it's usually in a tone of concern. So we got you and I both have little kids; they're the same age, but now and in a generation's time, should we be worried? Well, they've certainly is that changed. The word? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the Chinese Communist Party has become more aggressive and coercive particularly over the last five. And when I was working as National Security Advisor, it was a different China. Yeah. Uh, in, in a very, you know, in ten, since 10 years ago, it's changed significantly. They've changed. They've decided to become more aggressive. They've slapped sanctions on some of our exports. They're trying to be coercive economically. Yeah. They're trying to push their position um, uh, in the region and with us. And, and I think, yes, we should be worried about that. We should be worried about any authoritarian uh, state trying to impose its will on countries uh, in the region yeah. and around the world. Um, again, we have a different system. We believe in a democracy. We believe in rule of law. We believe in freedom of the press and freedom of expression. You know, you wouldn't be able to run your show like this with yeah. some local, you know, being critical of the government yeah. or the Chinese Communist Party, whereas we, we actually cherish that kind of freedom. Yeah. We can bag Scott Morrison, we can bag Albo, we can do whatever we want, yeah. really. Not that I would bag Albo because he's yes. my boss, but, you know, <laughs> but we can, we're free, you know, Australian citizens are free to, <laughs> free to, to say and do whatever they want, really, within yeah. the law, as long as they're not harming anyone or, or, or inciting hatred or violence. Yeah. Um, they're, they're important freedoms, and that doesn't exist in, in countries like China, and there's a difference in a system. So the question is, what kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want a world where that is, that, that kind of worldview is dominant? Yeah. Um, or do we, uh, is, it, is it worth fighting and protecting our, our freedom in that respect? Um, and these are hard questions, mate, because, you know, it's about our defence uh, budget. It's about um, managing our diplomacy in a way that we don't um, exacerbate tensions. Mm. But I, I'm of the view that we should be... You know, they're an important trading partner, China, so we, were, we, yeah. we want a peaceful path. We want, you know, 
clear rules of the road, as it were, in the region. Yeah. But we want all the countries to abide by those. Yeah. It sounds like we're a real fork in the road in a lot of spots, and it's interesting, like, you talk about how China has changed and how the world has changed. And, you know, you've mentioned in your other media around how Australia has a... Um, Australia probably needs to see itself as more important than we currently do mm. in terms of the size of our economy, in terms of our potential influence, and the fact that at least even geographically the centre of the world has moved. Yep. But also the fact that we probably... I reckon if you talk to most blokes at the pub, they would think, oh, Australia's a pissant. What are what, what we... As if anyone... Do you reckon most, blo- most people say that at the pub? I reckon if you talk about, say, sanctions on Russia, for example, to use yeah. something topical, they'd be like, as if Russia gives a rat's ass what Australians are going to do. But I reckon maybe we're more important than we think we are, and that in terms of our political leadership and the rhetoric around that maybe needs to start to up the ante on that, because it's not just about our, um, I guess, our challenges, and it's not just about our uh, opportunity, whether it be China or, you know, any of that stuff, it's also about our responsibility, right? Yeah. Well, I'd go back to my footy days and talk about the one percenters, Mm. you know. They all add up, right? So Australia working within the international community, when it's taking certain actions to defend our democracy and other democracies and our uh, the the values that we we really hold dear, those one percenters add up. So even if Australia puts on some sanctions and it might not hurt Russia that much or the or the, the oligarchs or Putin, but collectively, when the international community is working collectively, yeah. those one percenters add up. What they're yeah. doing footy, they make a difference. It's also what it represents. You know, what's right? one of the greatest things? What's that? Well, it's also what it represents, not just what it tangibly provides. It's also that we're basically saying this is what we believe Correct. is right. Yeah, absolutely. And we're standing up for what we the consequence here. And not not to sort of overdo the footy thing, but I really I've got to mention this as a Collingwood supporter. Yeah. One of the greatest things I've ever saw was Heath Shaw smother on Nick Rewall. Right. I was behind that goal, yeah. by the way. Well, yeah. And that's a 1% of that was 100% okay. showed me that we were going to win that game. Why? These things have symbolic meaning. Yeah. That draw the sort of analogy, stretch it a bit. Yeah. But when we take certain actions, there's the symbolic element of it. There's the morale. Yeah. Look, look at the way the, the Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, who's out there, you know, doing selfies and videos in the middle of Kiev, which is being bombed, you know, Bomb to, bombs sort of falling around him yeah. and he's rallying the troops. That means something. That There's that human element where people are inspired by this. Yeah. The other point I'd make about Australia, and I'm unashamed about this, I think Australia, you know, I, I get sick and tired of people saying, oh, we're punching above our weight and all this kind of... I remember meeting with, uh, when, I was, when I was working in government, um, Susan Rice, who was President Obama's National Security Advisor, and she said, well, tell us a bit about, you know, what you're doing in, in the Pacific and stuff and... You know, I said, oh, well, we've got troops in Afghanistan and Iraq and we're in Solomon Islands. Oh, she's like, wow, you guys are really stretched like us. It's like amazing that you're doing all these mm-hmm. um, different things to, to, you know, these various uh, missions and so on. Um, and she goes, oh, you must have a really, you know, you know how large is your military? And I said, oh, it's about 77,000. She goes, that's a very small army. I said, well, actually, that's Army, Navy and Air Force put together. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. she was shocked. Yeah. Like they don't realise that, yeah, and we, we have for a long time punched above our weight, yeah. so to speak. But Australia's the 12th largest economy in the world, maybe That's 11th largest. And when I, was, okay. I only found this out last week when I was looking at your stuff in preparation for yeah. today. I was like, surely that's not true. That's quite amazing. We we dominate the world in, in sport, for example, you yeah. know, our, our, our sports people. We, we have great diplomats. We have, we have great business people. We have got innovation. We've got entrepreneurs. Um, I think this provincial attitude that we're a small country 
yeah. is changing slowly. Yes. I think we are, we, and you know, and I, you probably saw this where I said, you know, Keating used to say we're at the arse end of the world, right? Did, yeah. We are no longer at the arse end of the world. Yeah. We are smack, the world's moved, right? Yeah, the world has moved. We are smack bang in the middle of the most important um, uh, geographical area, the Indo-Pacific, for the 21st century. And yeah. in fact, Australia is actually in a critical position you know, with our relationship with our security and strategic relationship with the US, our economic relationship with China, we're in a pivotal position as a yeah. nation. And we actually have the ability, the capacity, and I would argue the responsibility in some respects to ensure that we can maintain the stability of our region and, and of obviously the prosperity that Australian generations before us have enjoyed for our next generation and the next generation. Yeah. That's a big, big challenge, Rav. It's like... It's not easy to do, no. but we're, we're in the middle of it right now. Yeah. And we can't hide from that. We have a role to play in world history, which is significant. Yeah. So Amy yeah, this then comes back to the way we see ourselves as a nation, as from people on the street to what the general rhetoric of our political leaders is, is probably, we're probably more important than we realise we are. Oh, we definitely are. And, you know, in my trip to Washington, you know, the Yanks, you know, we, we obviously do a lot of operations together in the Pacific, I use the old NFL phrasing, again, to go to the American football version. I said, look, we quarterback on a couple of uh, big stuff in parts of the Pacific, um, but when we're not quarterbacking, we're kind of equal partners in a lot of stuff in Asia as well, yeah. whether it's military, security, intelligence, diplomatic, we're playing tight ends, which is both, some of those listeners that know the NFLs, but you can play offensive and defensive tight end, right? So we play a really significant role uh, uh, you know, in the in the Indo-Pacific region, which is, as I said, one of the most, it's the most important region uh, in 21st century global affairs, if you like. Mm. Quite, look, it's it's um, it's sobering, is what it is, on a few fronts. Um, and, you know, I just hope that all of us, you know, just me as a just bloke on the street, general consumer of it, mm. that we feel that, yes, we should be concerned, yes, there is opportunity, and yes, there is an opportunity here to also take responsibility and do what's right irrespective of the consequences. There's that, but I think it's, uh, my, my view is always that I'm always attuned to Australia's national interest. That comes yes. first for me. Yes. What's in our interest? Yeah. We have our allies, we have our friends, we have our partners, but the, ultimately I'm always focused on what is best for Australia. That's my responsibility. I'm cognizant yeah. of my responsibility. And and with, with respect to that, Australia's national interest, I think, is very much focused on ensuring the stability in the region, yeah. right? So we, we tamp down tensions as much as we can. And in order to do that, sometimes you've got to be stronger in yeah. your posture so that you deter others from thinking about it. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that goes to defence spending, which we've committed you know, to 2% of GDP, both sides of politics. Is that about right? Is that where it should be? Yeah, I, I think that that is about right. I yeah. mean, we've, uh, Anthony Albanese just in a speech recently said that that is where we right. should be. Um, so that stacks up okay compared to other nations, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of criticism of Germany over the decades that they weren't spending enough on defence spending. They've started to shift that <coughs> as well, given what's happening in Ukraine. But it's about, it's not so that you use it, so that it's a deterrent effect, frankly. Mm. It's like, you, can, you know, that, that's important. And then there's the, around the, the security in the region, the, the things that we do together with our partners. And I've argued that Australia as a middle power, um, works with other middle powers in the region to ensure that we maintain that rules-based order that has served us so well. Yeah. And that rules-based order is important because it's like, you know, this, you talk about China, 
we, we, I said they were diminishing it. Why are they diminishing? Because they're trying to set up their own order mm. where they're pretty much in charge, right? It's not a, a rules-based order in that. It's, well, it's their rules, but it's not one that's, you know, that is uh, agreed upon by all of the parties fairly, no matter your size. It's more about might is right. So if they create artificial islands around, you know, to change the boundary yeah. of where the international border is, so they say, oh, that's no longer international waters. That's now our sovereign territory. Yeah. It's basically saying that our shipping, we can't float, you know, sail through there because it's no longer international waters. That's BS, mate. You yeah. can't just create some new reality and force everyone to accept it. Well, that's the definition right. of might is right, I suppose. Correct. Yeah. And we have to resist that yeah. because a rules-based order actually means something. And mm. I think Australia's a middle power working with other countries in the region. Um, a lot of our partners right across Asia is of critical importance over the next 10 years because what we do in, in the next decade is going to have a big impact on how we do it is going to have a big impact on whether we, we can maintain that prosperity and that security for the next generation of Australians. Yeah. Wow. A lot to think about. A lot to think about for all of us, I reckon. This is the Dad Bod Project. You referenced Iraq a couple of times, and, and again, this is why it's great to have this chat with you, because you've actually done it, right? You've, you've been boots on the ground. You've yeah. been there. And we've had a couple of beers off air yeah. around, and you've told me some stories that are just off tap like it's just <laughs> you know it's just something else and you know all the sort of media we do around the stories wonderful stories around AFL footy or whatever else but this is just this is another planet how do you reflect on that now and in terms of where Iraq's at and then your time there and your you know do you do you look back on that fondly do you look back oh, on no, not with, you never yeah. look back on a war zone fondly mm. I, I certainly don't think it was not normal. Uh, war is not normal. It's a horrible thing. You want to avoid it at all costs. And when you're in the middle of it, you know why you want to avoid it yeah. at all costs. And you do everything possible to avoid uh, the, the horrors of that. Um, you know, I, I think Iraq now is, unlike Afghanistan, is kind of still going. It's still got a democratically elected government. It's still, it's not perfect by any means, but, but it's still going. Um, I, I was against the war in the first place, just to put that on the table, I actually was, was opposed. I thought it was a strategic mistake, but also would lead to a humanitarian disaster, which it did. Mm. But I was asked to do my duty, like all the diggers were who, who went there and have yeah. gone to many other uh, wars in the past. Australians have served, um, you know, in, in you know, all the wars of the 20th century and, uh, and so on. They've done their duty, whether they agreed with it or not. And part of that duty was to help rebuild Iraq, and I got there pretty early just after the invasion in 03, 04, and I was working on um, rebuilding the Iraqi army and, and, and working on the national security uh, issues around um, the security forces. And then I tried to get um, some of the, um, the I, I, de I dealt a lot with the tribal leaders out in the Western Desert, and Ramadi and Fallujah and so on, to join uh, the, 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 the new Iraqi security forces and fight Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, the terrorist group. Uh, and I worked with the Kurdish Peshmerga forces up north and some of the Shiite militia tried to demobilise the militias who were fighting each other and worked on a bit on the, on the National Security Committee cabinet. So that's all the formal stuff, but the, the visceral stuff that we talked about over beer, the experiences you have, I'll never forget. Some, like Even before I got there, I was just sort of on the way in and I was at a mess, an army base, uh, an American army base, and I met up and I was sitting having lunch. Uh, I was on the way in and this guy, Sergeant Martinez, was on the way out. And he had this look in his eye and he told me about the invasion, which just happened. I got there like, you know, just after it. Um, and he'd been one of the first in. 
And the way he was telling me the story, matter of fact, matter of fact way he was telling me the story about how he was in a Humvee and his mate, one of his best mates, had his head blown off by RPG that came through the window. Mm. And he was just telling me in a matter of fact way yeah. that, that his mate's brain and, and all the blood splattered all over him as he's driving into Baghdad and this RPG just hit him mm. and he was sitting next to him. But the way he was telling me kind of shocked me because it was like, it was just in a normal voice. It wasn't even emotional. He had this glassy eyed look. I thought, fuck, I don't want to become like yeah. this guy. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, what am I going, what am I heading into here? Yeah. And um, it, it is a surreal place. And I got a bit worried, and this is going to sound strange, but there were, there were times where I, 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 nearly, I got, nearly got killed a couple of times with various things. But I never, weirdly enough, I never felt afraid. Yeah. I don't know how to explain that. Everything slowed down in the moment when th things happen, like we got, you know, you know, there were, just to pluck one example out, uh, you know, we were at this Iraqi politician's house uh, having meeting out in the front of his yard or whatever, and some insurgents must have realised there were some British generals and US generals there and a couple of high-value targets. So they came around the corner, they started firing on our position. Yeah. Um, and I remember I was talking to this guy who was a um, chancellor of... Mosul University or something like that. I was talking about education policy for him, yes. you know, just before dinner. And we're getting shot at. We're standing in front of a mud brick wall and that's getting pounded, right? And these bullets are going over our head. And I'd been there for so long, I realised I was probably in the best spot as far as cover. I didn't panic. I didn't run off. Like, yeah. AK-47 guy, they're just firing above us and the bullets are flying in. And I just kept talking to the guy. <laughs> as if nothing was it's like I said, our guy, our, you know, the special forces guys. You don't want to be rude. You've got to finish I just kept talking to him and the, and the guys, you know, it was a 10-minute firefight. They killed a couple of the insurgents. You know, we came out the front and we saw, you know, and the, the others escaped. And, and I thought, I remember going back that night and I used to smoke back then, so I was sort of polishing off a pack a day or a pack and a half a day. Right. At the end of the night, you couldn't sleep, so you just sat there and smoked and had a bit of scotch and, um, you know, tried to forget. But you just sit down and I remember thinking... Was well, something wrong with me? Like, why was I not freaking out? Yeah. By the fact that I was getting shot at. Could have saved your life, but maybe. Mm. And, and that that happened time and time again, where you know we missed an IED or a mortar nearly hit us. And there was another there was another one which really like I was out there meeting some um, tribal leader um, to get him to help you know with, with the tribal forces to fight um, you know on the front line in the Western Desert. Um, and then it was in the middle of Baghdad and then he left and then we heard these mortars. It was me and this other guy, this Lebanese-American guy who was an interpreter. Well, I, I spoke Arabic, but he was also there. And, and anyway, so the, the mortars were going over our head. Foom, foom, foom. And I, I heard three of them and I thought, oh, if you hear them, you know that they're not going to come right on top of you. Right. The set speed of set, oh, you know how it works. Yeah, yeah. The sound goes with a bit of a delay. So I thought they were going to land nearby and they sort of landed like, half a click away and big explosion and you know stuff going everywhere and we dived into the side of the road up behind these sandbags and um i got up dusted myself off and i said to the guy with me oh mate we, we, we gotta go we gotta get back to base now yeah, it's a bit hairy it was like it was 11 30 at night and um and he lost his he lost it he started right. screaming and we're in the middle of wow. baghdad and I'm thinking, shit, everyone's watching this. Like, they're gonna, and he's, speaking, he's screaming in English. Right. And I'm like, mate, calm down, just shut up. And I was trying to calm yeah. him down. And it's just like, take it easy. He'd been there longer than me. And maybe it got to him in a different yeah. way. 
And he's like, I've had enough of this. I can't. So he hit his tipping point. Yeah. He, he, I'd, I'd never seen someone like be like lose it like that. So I had to kind of calm him down and drag him into a corner, into a side street. And I'm looking around. People are watching from the buildings and the windows. And I'm like, shit. Yeah. The insurgents are going to get tipped off any moment now. <laughs> There's yeah. a couple of, you know, Americans or Australians or whatever, coalition people in the middle of Baghdad City. So we were ripe for a target to be kidnapped. And I was just very lucky. I mm. went out onto the street and I saw a, a, a patrol, American patrol, because I was in civvy clothes, right? Yeah. So I was sort of incognito, as they say. Yes. And I, I waved it down. So you could pass for a local. Yeah, I could pass for a local. As soon as they heard me speak, they'd know I wasn't local. Yeah. My, 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 as soon as you um, referenced Peter Dacos. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. What, what are they talking yeah. you know? So I waved down a, a Humvee patrol and they thought I was an Iraqi, so they're like, I had all the lasers on my head. Yeah. I'm in the middle of the street with my arms up and um, they're screaming at me and the, these soldiers are coming up close to me. And I, I was calm enough that I just waited for them to come up close enough. And I didn't because there was a crowd was forming, yeah. like a bit of a mob as well and so the sergeant i remember there was like this uh this this uh, grunt who's he's had his machine gun onto me and, I, and i'm like just come closer sergeant just um quiet enough that only he could hear yeah and it took him a while to click that i was speaking english yeah and i just just reach into my and he got real close so reach into my pocket just look at my pass and he right. did, and then I said, "Don't, don't give off that." You know. Yeah. So you've got some somebody that he would know, and then he pretends. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I said, yeah, I said to him, "Grab me and my guy who's down in the corner over there, and throw us in the Humvees as if you're arresting us." Yes. So I didn't want to cause a scene and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And then so let them know. yeah, let them know. So, but then I, I was thinking to myself, I'd never got trained for any of this shit. Wow. So why am I? Why was I? Was it, was it the movies that I watched as a kid when I just copied yeah. copied stuff? I don't know. But every yeah, you time naturally of that bent, you know, where you just come in a crisis, perhaps. Even. But you know what? What shits or me you the most? Your tipping point yet? You know what shits right, me mate? the most? I have tipping points when I have to fill out some forms. I lose my shit. Everyone forms. We know all that bureaucratic stuff. Now. It drives me mental. Yeah. I can't. I'm not calm, and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I've got to fill this out, and I'm going to do yeah. this, and I'm going to do that. It drives me spare, and yet, in a situation where your life's in danger, I'm kind of outside of myself a bit. That's a, it's a bit weird. It's a, it's, it's quite interesting that you've got bullets flying over your head, and then you just smash back a few durries and a bit of scotch with your mate, <laughs> well, and you're still talking about education policy and the West and how that might translate to Iraq. I don't, I, I don't know what it is. I, I remember speaking to the army psychologist as I was leaving about all the experience. I said, and she's like, oh, you know, you got to talk about it. I'm like, oh, no, these guys have went through much worse than me. And I was there for a year. Oh, they had much worse. And I'm, and, and, I'm, and, she, and she's like, no, 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 your experiences are important because you got to deal with it. And she was right. When I got back to Australia, it took me a while to re-acclimatise. Mm -hmm. It was a weird feeling walking down you've the gone street. From one another, you've yeah. gone from one planet to a different planet. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was weird. And, yeah. and whenever a car backfired or a door slammed or a duck, because yeah. we were getting hit every morning. So every morning, we, we the, the, the the bomb sirens would go off yeah. when we were in, in Baghdad, and we would we'd have to go down to the bomb shelter underneath the Saddam's palace, as it was there. There was a right. bomb, bomb shelter. And um, every morning, like clockwork, at like 5.25 a.m. or 5.30 a.m., they'd, they'd be incoming, and the sirens would go, and you'd have to run off. After a while of this, a couple of months of this, I said, F this, I need an extra hour of sleep, but, you know. So I stayed in my little cubicle. I actually asked someone, what are the odds of getting hit? And they're like, oh, about one in a thousand. 
So yeah, took those Oz cards. <laughs> I want that extra hour of sleep. It was snooze, stupid. There's hitting the snooze button and then there's hitting the snooze <laughs> button. One, that no, one morning I woke up and uh, there's in these prefab things that you sort of out the back of the uh, the Republican Palace where we were. In fact, actually, the first month that I was there, I slept in the Grand Hall. Are you a heavy sleeper? Yeah, I just I didn't sleep anywhere. We, <laughs> right. we slept in the Grand Evidently. Hall with about a thousand Marines on bunks. Yeah. Like it was in this big grand ballroom. It was like a thousand blokes with, with hammocks and stuff. Jeez. And then we moved into these little prefab things with a bed at the back of the palace. So I'm in mine and I looked up, I woke up one morning and there was this like hole in the roof, plaster everywhere, and I found these these bullets that had come through. I kept one as a souvenir. So because they shoot into the compound. And you slept through it. I slept through it. That is <laughs> I was like pretty tired. Evidently. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know what, what <laughs> oh, it is, but I was tired. I don't know what it is, but you kind of things become normalised yeah. when you're getting shot at and there's bombs coming in every morning. It becomes the norm, and people deal with it differently. I they guess. do. Are you okay now? I mean, yeah, yeah, okay well, is, an, is a a pretty bland term, but I mean, are you? Well, the you know they talk about PTSD yeah. and all that. Like, so absolutely, the, the she was right. The psych. It took a while to reacclimatise. I I because I used to go to restaurants in in Iraq. And, all, and I'd meet with Iraqis and politicians and stuff, but I always, I was hypersensitive to what was happening around me. So I'd never sit with my back to a door or any doorways, always mm. find a corner of the room where I could see all the entry, entry and exit points. Yeah. I could map in my mind's eye, I would see them where everyone's sitting and what they're talking. I even was listening into conversations outside of my conversation. Yeah. And, and you're really hypersensitive because there's a lot of suicide um, Bombers, mm. and, and in fact, a lot of places I went to get, got blown up, right? Yeah. By suicide bombers. So it took me a while to go be normal and go to restaurants without like watching every table and seeing, yeah. watching for any suspicious activity and all that kind of thing. That took a while, as did the sort of reaction to door slamming and you know that kind of loud noise. Yeah. Because you, you you're hyped up and you sort of ready unless you're asleep, which was fine. Unless I was asleep, <laughs> then, I, then I'm fine. That's, it took I'm, a while though. Yeah, it is, and I, I mean, I've heard that reported quite a bit. And just you know, it's um, the punchline of this is what you said at the start. It's all shit. War is no good. Oh, Avoid it at all costs. You have to, um, and that's why diplomacy you know, is so important. Yeah, and it's wonderful to hear your stories for a number of reasons. One, it's just plain interesting, mm. but also too, I guess you know, just to remind ourselves, you came back to the start of how fortunate we are in this country, and just to remind ourselves of that, that we're not dealing with that, and we see it on the news in Ukraine, but it's not really real. It's, it's on not TV. really real, but it is real. But then those stories are... I know, you know it's real. I can feel, yeah. almost feel, when I watch the footage of what's happening in Ukraine and the people in that are suffering yeah. in Kiev and in um, all the other towns and cities that are getting bombarded, I know what they're feeling like. I know how... It's probably even worse because yeah. their civvies... I, I was in a... I, I, there was a bomb shelter I could run to or... Yeah whatever, but I can f almost feel what they're going through and the courage that they have to resist this. Yeah. It would be just easy for them to put up the white flag and, but geez, they've got guts like to stand up to Putin yeah. um, and fight. And what are they fighting for? They're fighting for their right to choose. Mm. They're fighting for their freedom, not to be dominated by someone yeah. or a dictator. That's, Sometimes we take that for granted, don't we? Like we Australians, Australians. Uh, it's great. I love the fact that we are 
uh, pretty like larrikins and cheeky when it comes to politics and our political leaders. You know, yeah. we we call them by their first name. It's Scotty yeah. or John or or yeah. Elbow or whatever. You know, I love that. I love yeah. that about about Australia. Um, but I think it's really important for Australians to also know how special it is what we have, yeah. how much we have in this context in this country. That's that's really really important. Um, and not to be indifferent to that because it, it's pretty unique. Yeah, and it's becoming more and more. Unfortunately, democracies around the world are shrinking. This is the Dad Bod Project. The one thing that brought us here, though, mm. and you know, we talk about all the things that are happening in the world that are. Uh, a challenge and of concern to us, but the nature of men's mental health mm. statistics in this country are just plain shit house. Um, and that's what led us to the Dadbond project and, and the content that we're just, all that we're trying to do in, in our own way. As someone that is in a position to decision making or at least influencing policy, is there, as, as simple as this question is, what do you think we can be doing better in Australia about that, do you reckon? For men's mental health? For men's mental health, yeah. In the demographic that you and I are in. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good question because um, I was talking about this, you know, with Warney passing as well, you know, Mm. a lot of men now in our age group, 40s, 50s, oh, go get checked, get your your heart checked, all that. Absolutely important to do that. There's also the mental health side of it, anger, the frustration, all the different parts of our lives where we've got regrets or... and, And that mental health... Piece, I think is completely underdone yeah. uh, for, for our demographic. Um, I mean, I, I put up with, you know, when I got back, I was saying, I got angry at stuff as well. That was the other thing I didn't say. Yeah. Like, I, 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 okay. It took me a while to get over the physical stuff, but it was like I was blown up. I was getting angry at irrelevant stuff. Wow. Yeah, okay. Because I'd done all this stuff that was really important, and then even when I, you know, in politics, and then I became a, you know, security advisor, like, dealing with big stuff. You're calm, yeah. I'm calm, and I'm you know, under pressure, all that. But then I'd blow up on little stuff. Right. Like, that didn't make any sense to me. But yeah. I, I, So see, I'd say to the guys listening, you know, if, you, if you've if you got these issues, go and see someone. Like, go go and talk to someone. I, I, I have. I'm not ashamed to say it. I, I had to deal with those anger issues. Yeah. What, what was it driving it for me? It was like, I think a lot of it was, you know, I'm, I'm doing these big decisions. I'm, I'm under a lot of pressure. And then for me, I'm like, why do I have to deal with this little crappy thing? And it drove me a bit over the edge. It's like, why am I dealing with this crap? Mm. You know? So I had to learn to, to understand, the, you know, to, to, to manage my emotional reactions and to, to even it out a bit, if that yeah. makes any sense. So and guys have different problems, you know, in, in dealing with it. But I, I would really say to everyone, there's no shame in going to see someone to help you through that. Yeah. Why is that? In, remember the guy that I saw, he said, what do you want? You want to take care of your health, because you want to have kick the footy with your kids when, when when they're a bit older and spend time with them. But you also want to have a better quality of life yeah. in your engagement with with your family, with your friends, and and cherish those moments. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that really shifted my perspective about how important family was, um, how important my family was to me as well. Yeah, you deal with big issues at work, and there, and we've been talking a lot about that stuff big geostrategic issues and what Australia does on the world stage and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And But, you know, it's just as important to um, kick the soccer ball or the footy with your, with your kid or to do some arts and crafts with them yeah. or to play a game of chess with them or spend time with them. 
Because you're never going to get those moments yeah. when you get older, when they get older too. Every dad says to me, you know, when they get to 17, 18, they're probably not going to want to hang out with you that much yeah. anymore. Yeah. So cherish those moments, you know, when they're younger. Yeah. But it's also building a relationship with them as well. Yes. And the importance of that, right? Well, I think how you do that, that's my question to you, is how do you manage it? And you, of all people, with you, the, the life that you're living and have lived, is that... You know, we're all doing that. We're having this conversation now. We're both going to head off to primary school to get both. Yeah, I'm going to pick up right? the kids at yeah, That's exactly. I'm exactly the same, right? You know, so we're doing it in the same suburb, right? So we're living sort of those parallel lives. I don't have as many Iraq stories as you, but the point is that we are busy blokes yeah. that are trying to make the world better in our own way, trying to be remarkable, to inspire, to lead, to do all that stuff, and still go and pick up our kids. How are you doing that? If there's one tip or two tips that are a takeaway, how are you managing that? Uh, with great difficulty, yeah. honestly. Like it, the, the scheduling stuff is nuts because my missus, Lydia, as well, is you know, accomplished uh, a professional as well. She's writing a book and she's working yeah. on, on all these big issues as well, on foreign policy as well, counter-terrorism. So we're both busy lives yeah. and I've made a conscious decision You know that it's not fair. We both have to split the... The raising yeah. of our kids it's not fair to just put it on your your missus everything yeah. especially the political and you life. probably don't want to no i don't want to i want it to be fair so we've <laughs> we've got this elaborate kind of scheduling thing about yeah. pickups and drop-offs and when i'm in camera you know she's doing them all so i've got to make up for them right. that's all the logistical stuff so it's like a military operation right yes. most parents would know this yes um juggling your work and your kids and stuff but the real tip i reckon the most important thing to say to, to, to people listening is that it's not so much the quantity of time, because you can have junk time with your kids where you're not really engaged with them. If you're not there with them, you can spend three hours, you're there you know, in the house with them, but your mind is elsewhere. It's not really, you're not really doing the time with them, are you? Whereas 45 minutes where you're, you're looking them in the eye and you're engaged, my, my, my son loves Pokemon cards, and you're sort of talking right. about which cards and better. And you're watching Shippers by. Yeah, and yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. We've just come out of that place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm in the middle that. of the Pokemon cards thing. It's like there's always one thing. Um, but if you're engaged with your kid, really engaged, yeah. their eyes light up and you're really interacting, that 45 minutes is way more precious than three hours of sitting with them but not really being there, or being on the phone, talking to work, phones, yeah. and all that. Yeah, getting the wind up. Yeah. So look, and look, that's probably the takeaway, and a lot of us have learned that in the last, particularly those of us that have been through lockdown, in that we've had, um, we were working and being a parent and found we were doing a shitty job of both. Yeah, you know? so, yeah exactly. so, so that's a great tip. Yeah. Peter, thank you for joining us on the Dead Bob Project podcast. No, thank you, Rad, thanks for having me.